0: Core of the Bible Podcast number 49, Is There a Biblical Curse in Withholding Forgiveness? Welcome to The Core of the Bible Podcast. My name is Steve, and I'll be your host as we explore the message of the Bible reduced to its simplest form. As you may know, it's my belief the core of the Bible message consists in principles derived from the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount. These include the topics of Kingdom, Integrity, Vigilance, Holiness, Trust, Forgiveness, and Compassion. Today, we're going to be exploring the topic of Forgiveness, and how the forgiveness we extend or don't extend toward others will likely be evidenced within our own relationship with God. In John 20 verse 23, Yeshua says, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now the context of this passage is the day of Yeshua's resurrection, in the evening of that very day. The disciples were still trying to understand what had happened since their teacher had been crucified a few days before. A strange report of Messiah's appearance had come from Mary, and Peter and John had both been to the tomb and found it was empty. Suddenly, Yeshua is among them all, proclaiming peace and wholeness, or shalom, and providing an admonition to remain receptive to the Holy Spirit of God and to exercise the privilege of forgiveness with others. Now, Most commentators view this as a special privilege, an anointing, or commissioning of the twelve disciples, or in this case the ten disciples since Thomas and Judas were not among them. However there is no indication that this admonition was just to Yeshua's closest circle, but it was conveyed to all those present. How much value should we place on these words? Well, let's put this in perspective. If you were to die and then to be raised back to life and to visit once again with your closest friends and confidants, what words would you say? Do you think those words would be considered important words by those who were seeing you alive again? Well, I believe wholeheartedly, yes, they would be extremely important words. And this is why I believe the significance of what Yeshua is teaching here cannot be minimized. The first collective teaching Yeshua provides His followers after being resurrected is to remain receptive to God's Spirit and to be mindful of how they exercise forgiveness, because to whomever forgiveness is not extended, then the state of unforgiveness remains. In reality, this should not be surprising to us, since Messiah consistently taught of the importance of forgiving others— And how the believers use of forgiveness with others will be an indicator of God's forgiveness with them in Matthew 6 he says and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors for if you forgive others their offenses your Heavenly Father will forgive you as well but if you don't forgive others your father will not forgive your offenses In mark 11 it says and whenever you stand praying if you have anything against anyone forgive him so that your father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing in Luke 17 he says and if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you seven times saying I repent you must forgive him so we can see from these teachings that if we withhold forgiveness from someone for whatever reason we may have we may in a very real sense be creating a situation where God withholds his forgiveness from us it's not that our actions can restrict the workings of the all powerful God, but only that he has chosen to align himself with the human ideals as a means of communicating his love and mercy to us. Charles Ellicott has the following to say in regards to this idea of forgiveness and unforgiveness. He says, quote, In the very act of prayer, we are taught to remind ourselves of the conditions of forgiveness. Even here, in the region of the free grace of God, there is a law of retribution. The temper that does not forgive cannot be forgiven, because it is ipso facto a proof that we do not realize the amount of debt we owe. We forget the ten thousand talents as we exact the hundred pence, and in the act of exacting, we bring back that burden of the greater debt upon ourselves." I believe this is a critical yet often overlooked aspect to the forgiveness of God. In all things, God desires us to be true and honest, and He abhors dishonesty and hypocrisy. If we're withholding forgiveness from someone for some offense they've committed against us, what should be God's logical reason for continuing to provide us forgiveness that comes from Him? This seems to create a bit of a paradox for us. Yeshua appears to be teaching us that we hold within our grasp the key of forgiveness or the lock of unforgiveness toward others, and our experience with God will mirror how we apply this privilege. God, it seems, desires that we model ourselves after His characteristics, such as holiness, mercy or compassion, and forgiveness. In Leviticus 19, it says, Speak to the entire Israelite community and tell them, Be holy because I, Yahweh your God, am holy. Psalm 145, it says, Yahweh is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and great in faithful love. Yahweh is good to everyone. His compassion rests on all he has made. In Colossians 4, Paul says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. In 1 Peter 3, Peter says, Finally, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic, love one another, and be compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but, on the contrary, giving a blessing, since you were called for this, so that you may inherit a blessing. You see, God has made us in His image, and yet, when that image becomes marred through our own selfish ambition and disobedience, God appears to reciprocate in kind by providing negative experiences or what can be called his curses. Here's an example of how this principle is exhibited with personified wisdom in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 1, wisdom is quoted as saying, How long, inexperienced ones, will you love ignorance? How long will you mockers enjoy mocking, and you fools hate knowledge? Since you neglected all my counsel and did not accept my correction, I in turn will laugh at your calamity I will mock when terror strikes you Notice the mockers who rejected the knowledge of God would be mocked by personified wisdom as their own calamity would befall them due to their rejection of God's instruction Here's another example. In the apocryphal book of the Wisdom of Solomon, there's a passage which identifies this type of thinking of the Hebrew culture in the time of Second Temple Judaism. Speaking in the narrative about the Israelites wandering in the desert, the text says, and this is Wisdom 11, it says, "...in return for their foolish and wicked thoughts, which led them astray to worship irrational serpents and worthless animals." You, Yahweh, sent upon them a multitude of irrational creatures to punish them, so that they might learn that one is punished by the very things by which one sins. This is the state of those who live in rebellion against God. It becomes a natural course of events due to their unwillingness to abide by God's righteous ways, and the things through which they sin against God become the very things that plague them later on. This idea of retributive justice is all through the Bible. The Apostle Paul also presents a view of the fleshly life versus the spiritual life as he encourages the Galatian believers to be sure they are sowing seed in the appropriate place. In Galatians 6, he writes, Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap, because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the spirit i tend to believe this retributive justice of god is this ancient biblical principle from which the eastern concept of karma has been derived well that's certainly my opinion and one that would require a whole other discussion to fully substantiate but i believe the biblical principles were at one point understood by all mankind and other religions have since become corruptions of these truths over the millennia Let's take a closer look at this idea of the retributive justice of God in some of the final words of Moses to the Israelites. One of the most glaring passages to illustrate this concept of retributive justice is in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Moses is reminding the people of all that God has done for them from Egypt up until the eve of their entering into the promised land. And in this chapter, he lays out blessings that would be evident for their obedience and also curses for their disobedience. When viewed together, we can see that the curses are essentially the opposite of the blessings. Now, all of these are from Deuteronomy 28. In verse 3 is a blessing. It says, You will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. But in verse 16, where it mentions the curses, it says, You will be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. In verse 4, the blessing says, Your offspring will be blessed and your land's produce and the offspring of your livestock, including the young of your herds and the newborn of your flocks. But in verse 18, the curse says, Your offspring will be cursed and your land's produce, the young of your herds and the newborn of your flocks. In verse 5, the blessing reads, Your basket and kneading bowl will be blessed. But on verse 17, it says, Your basket and kneading bowl will be cursed for disobedience. In verse 6, the blessing is, You will be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. In verse 19, the curse is, You will be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out if they're disobedient. And finally, verse 7, it says, Yahweh will cause the enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you. They will march out against you from one direction, but flee from you in seven directions. And in verse 20, the curse reads, Yahweh will send against you curses and confusion and rebuke in everything you do until you are destroyed and quickly perish because of the wickedness of your actions in abandoning me. So on and on it goes through the whole chapter. It would appear that curses for disobedience are essentially corrupted and inverted blessings for obedience. This implies that God desires our obedience in righteous actions. And when we do so, he demonstrates we're acting in accord with his purpose by providing certain blessings towards us. However, when we choose not to do so, then he matches his actions towards us by our actions towards him. And those actions meant to be blessings then become inverted and appear to us as curses. Here's another example from the book of Daniel. Daniel appears to be well aware of how they were living out the very warnings and curses that Moses had provided 700 years earlier. In Daniel chapter 9 verse 11, he says, "All Israel has broken your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. The promised curse written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we have sinned against him." Yes, Daniel is lamenting the curse that Moses warned them about that had come to pass. Specifically here again is from Deuteronomy 28. In Deuteronomy 28 uh, later on in the chapter in verses 36 and 37, and 49 and 52 it says Yahweh will bring on you and your king that you have appointed to a nation neither you nor your fathers have known and there you will worship other gods of wood and stone you will become an object of horror of scorn and ridicule among all the peoples where Yahweh will drive you Yahweh will bring a nation from far away from the ends of the earth to swoop down on you like an eagle a nation whose language you won't understand a ruthless nation showing no respect for the old and not sparing the young They will eat the offspring of your livestock and your land's produce until you are destroyed. They will leave you no grain, new wine, fresh oil, young of your herds, or newborn of your flocks until they cause you to perish. They will besiege you with all of your city gates until your high and fortified walls that you trust in come down throughout your land. They will besiege you within all your city gates throughout the land Yahweh your God has given you. These are the warnings that Daniel has in mind as he continues his admonition to the people of God in captivity. Continuing in Daniel 9, starting in verse 12, he says, He has carried out his words that he spoke against us and against our rulers by bringing on us a disaster that is so great that nothing like what has been done to Jerusalem has ever been done under all of heaven. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, All this disaster has come on us yet we have not sought the favor of Yahweh our God by turning from our iniquities and paying attention to your truth so Yahweh kept the disaster in mind and brought it on us for Yahweh our God is righteous in all that he has done but we have not obeyed him Daniel recognized that the Israelites were experiencing the fruit of that which they had sown they rebelled against God and he responded in a way that he told them he would This resulted in a horrific overthrow of the city of Jerusalem and the final remaining Israelites to be carried off to Babylon. Daniel connects the two concepts in no uncertain terms, and this is a clear demonstration of how God's curse, the opposite of the blessing in the land, came to pass. You know, it seems to me that people today enjoy talking about blessings and how much God has blessed them, but curses are viewed as medieval superstitions. While there is, in truth, a measure of superstition to the idea of people placing curses on other people, if we understand that biblical curses are essentially blessings of God that have been inverted due to disobedience, it helps to make sense of some of the struggles non-believers face as they live lives in rebellion against God. If, for example, we choose to live lives of treachery and deceit for our own pride and our selfish gain, there's a good likelihood that our lives will be filled of not knowing who to trust and being fearful of being taken advantage of at every turn. This is the natural result or consequence of those decisions. Yet, if we choose to live humbly with integrity and honesty, it's more likely people will interact with us in similar ways, and we'll have friends we can trust and experience less stress overall. Proverbs 3 says, Yahweh's curse is on the household of the wicked, but He blesses the home of the righteous. He mocks those who mock, but gives grace to the humble. Now, let me be quick to add that Yeshua provides additional perspective on what a blessing from God may look like. Based on what we've seen so far, blessings are good things and curses would be bad things. However, Yeshua also mentions how some things that can look bad can actually be blessings when based on the truth of God and view from God's perspective. In Matthew 5, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. See, being poor in spirit doesn't appear to be a blessing, yet Yeshua says it is. Mourning in and of itself does not appear to provide a blessing, yet Yeshua says there's a certain type of mourning that does. For those who are of humble heart and circumstance, or poor in spirit, and who mourn for righteousness to be expressed, they will have those yearnings fulfilled. In Matthew 5, once again, he says in verses 10 through 12, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, certainly being insulted and persecuted and having false and evil things said against you cannot possibly be considered a blessing, could it? Well, Yeshua confirms they are, but only if those things are being conducted against you specifically because of your expressed faith in Messiah, who is the truth of God revealed. Psalm 5 says, But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them shout for joy forever. May you shelter them, and may those who love your name boast about you. For you, Yahweh, bless the righteous one. You surround him with favor like a shield see, consistent with all blessing is that those who exhibit righteousness are blessed by God. To have faith in Yeshua was to have many negative consequences for the believers, and may still to this day. However, those negative consequences could be considered as blessings because they were and are based on the truth of God. So returning in summary to our topic of forgiveness, you may have noticed I have kind of gone off into the weeds in regards to the retributive justice of god but if you'll remember it was not without reason in light of yeshua's teaching on forgiveness in matthew 6 where he says and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors for if you forgive others their offenses your heavenly father will forgive you as well but if you don't forgive others your father will not forgive your offenses see if we truly believed this was the case then we would never remain unforgiving toward anyone If we desired God to be forgiving toward us, we would do everything we could to ensure there was no form of outstanding unforgiveness among any of our relationships. We saw that when Yeshua returned from death, He exhorted His disciples to receive the Holy Spirit and to extend forgiveness to others. Otherwise, unforgiveness would remain. And If we could cautiously peel back the prejudice of our religious orthodoxy regarding the historical commentary of that passage in John 20 and simply consider the Messiah's words for what they say, the importance of forgiveness in the teaching of Yeshua cannot be understated. So, is there a biblical curse in withholding forgiveness? I think a case can be made in the affirmative to at least demonstrate that God actively resists those who resist His will, and I've included a few examples here to illustrate this idea. If we are allowing the Spirit of God to guide our lives, then we need to always be mindful of how important the role of forgiveness plays in our interactions with others. For to whomever forgiveness is not extended, then a state of unforgiveness remains. And if we are to maintain a consistent view within the larger context of Yeshua's teaching during his life and ministry, that state of unforgiveness can be measured against our own standing with God. The fact that the operation of the Spirit and forgiveness are knit together so closely should cause us to evaluate how receptive we are to the influence of God's Spirit in our lives. In my estimation, a life guided by the Spirit is, by default, a life of forgiveness. And forgiveness always brings a blessing. Well, once again, I hope I've been able to provide you some ideas and concepts to meditate on further. If you enjoyed this week's podcast, be sure to visit coreofthebible.org to read daily blog posts on these topics and to find out more about the message of the Bible reduced to its simplest form in the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount. Do you have questions about today's topic or comments or insights you'd like to share? Feel free to email me at Bible at gmail.com. Thanks for your interest in listening today. As always, I hope to be invited back into your headphones in another episode to come. Take care.